Coming up, a tiny thermometer for tiny temperature changes. We can measure temperatures on the order of a few millikelvin. Thousands of a degree, essentially, right? Yes. And why has drinking milk been such a big advantage in human evolution? Well, what is the big advantage? I just have to throw my hands up in the air. I've got nothing. Plus, quantum physics in Qatar or cell biology in Saudi. What to expect from science in the Middle East. This is a Nature Podcast. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. like a good cappuccino, creamy milk all frothed to perfection. There are plenty on offer in this North London coffee shop. Take away cappuccino. Thank you. But it hasn't always been possible to enjoy a drink like this. I don't just mean there haven't always been trendy coffee bars. I mean, there was a time in human evolution when it wasn't possible for humans to digest milk at all. In fact, in many regions of the world, like Southeast Asia and much of Africa, people still can't. It makes them sick. There's a feature in Nature all about the evolution of this special trait. I popped down to University College London to meet evolutionary geneticist Mark Thomas, who told me how milk digestion and tolerance got started in human evolution. I first asked Mark what proportion of the human population can digest milk. We think approximately one-third of the adults in the world are able to digest the sugar in milk, lactose, and so are comfortably able to consume milk And those of us who can digest it, who have this, uh, it's an enzyme, isn't it, that allows us to do that? That's right. I mean, everybody's born with that enzyme um, working. And of course, because babies drink milk, they need to be able to digest the sugary milk. But sometime after the weaning period is over, in two thirds of people in the world, the production of that enzyme just switches off to virtually, well, switches down to virtually zero levels. So it's the ability to produce that enzyme that's variable between people as an adult. When did that first start? to happen in, in human history? Well, that's the interesting thing, is that um, on the timescale of human evolution, it's remarkably recently. We think in the last 10 or so thousand years. Um, now, that actually makes a lot of sense, because prior to about 10 or 12,000 years ago, we wouldn't have had milk available until we, we domesticated milkable animals. And that led us to evolve a genetic ability to digest the sugar in that milk. Now, of course, that can also feed back because if, you're, if you've got that ability to digest the sugar in milk, you're more likely to want to actually farm animals and produce milk. And so we call that a gene culture co-evolutionary scenario. And at the genetic level, how complicated is this? Is this just one mutation, a sweet? Actually, it's an amazingly simple uh, situation. Um, it's one gene, there's a bit of DNA near that gene that controls whether that gene is on or off. And there are four major mutations. And there's one which is very common in Europe. So most people who can drink and digest comfortably digest the sugar in milk, they can do it because of exactly the same mutation. Whatever causes it in in the populations that have it, it spread pretty quickly, didn't it? Unbelievably so. I mean, it's uh, rocket-powered. And that kick is, of course, natural selection. It's increasing its frequency. And the rate at which it's increased its frequency is just breathtaking. It's of the order of 5 to 10% advantage per generation, which is just mind-boggling. So much so that 
if your next question is to ask me, well, what is the big advantage? I just have to throw my hands up in the air. I've got nothing to explain it being that big an advantage. It's just massive. Nonetheless, you have indeed predicted my next question. I mean, what are some of your guesses? Well, OK, so one very popular one was always applied to Europeans, particularly Northern Europeans, and that's the argument about vitamin D and calcium. The argument goes, well, by drinking more milk, we essentially supplemented this low-calcium and low-vitamin D um, lifestyle that we'd adopted. Another explanation is crop failure. If you're relying on milk from cattle, it's much more buffered, so you've got a more continuous supply. There is a seasonal fluctuation, so you get less milk in winter than you do in the summer, but it's not such a big fluctuation, so you're more protected against um, the kind of slings and arrows of the climate. Uh, one that I quite like that's related to what I've just the idea I just explained is if you've got populations that are they're not lactase persistent so they're not able to digest the sugar in milk imagine that you're severely malnourished and I give you food that causes diarrhea then you die so I would suggest that one possibility is it was at the time of famine that they were eating the less and less fermented milk products what effect did these mutations have once they got going on the spread of human populations in Europe, for example? That's a really good question. And, and we've done some computer simulation modelling, but the modelling used data from genetics and from archaeology. And we think that the most likely place where it originated was in Central Europe around 7,500 years ago. Why wouldn't this have spread to the whole population? That is a good question, and the and, and the answer has to be it's been trying very hard, and it's you know it's it was working very hard on that at least up until recently. Given it was from a standing start, I think it's done very well for itself. I mean, okay, it hasn't spread to the whole world, but it's spread to a third of the world, which is a long way to go. You mentioned that it's a product of gene and culture coevolution. It's something that humans have culturally done that's changed their genetics and vice versa, and now it's a big melange of all of these things happening at once. Is that quite special among traits that become genetic, or, or is this happening with lots of things? It's very special, because it is the classic example. It's the most clear-cut example we have of gene culture coevolution. But I think gene culture coevolution is also special in itself. In general, when people talk about evolution, they usually talk about the biological, the genetic side of evolution. But with humans, our culture is every bit as an important a part of our evolution as our genetics. In fact, I would say it's probably more important. Mark Thomas, thank you so much. My pleasure. Coming up in the research highlights, turtle-friendly fishing nets and travelling tutelage from T-cells. And we'll be finding out how to use diamond crystals to measure tiny temperatures. But first, oil reserves, vast deserts and the Arab Spring. All things that might spring to mind if someone says Middle East. Science, not necessarily on the list, but some countries in the region are hoping to change that. Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and also Saudi Arabia are really building up a science base from scratch. That's nature reporter Quirin Shearmeyer, who's written a feature on career moves to the Gulf. Over the past decade or so, these countries have reared a handful of science campuses and they're depending on recruiting young scientists from abroad. There's relatively little scientific workforce in the region, 
So all these countries really depend on uh, stretching the feelers out and getting scientific talent from other countries. One example is public health researcher Laith Abu-Radad. Originally from Jordan, he moved four years ago to the Qatar campus of Weill Cornell Medical College. At the time, Laith faced a difficult decision. Should he leave the comfort of his tenure-track position at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle for the unfamiliarity of a new lab in the Middle East? He took the plunge and gave himself a year to see if he liked it, and he did so much that he's still there. I gave Laith a call to see how he'd found the transition. I was always interested in coming back to the Middle East, but uh, I thought it would be impossible to combine both a thriving scientific career and also being close to home. Because when I left the region about 20 years ago, there were basically no research-oriented positions for uh, faculty members. And how is working in Qatar different to what you'd experienced in Seattle? Before coming here, I had, of course, a lot of fears. You know, maybe things will not work out. I'm coming to a new place where the whole research establishment has been very, very new. But it's really the other way around. In fact, the opportunities here were, are better than the opportunities I had in the U.S. There are so many things to do in the scientific areas because this re- region did not have much scientific research in public health before. So there were many opportunities for me to engage in. And you also won a hefty $6 million grant for your projects. Was it much easier to secure funding out there? Yeah, so uh, this is one of the major actual attractions here is is research funding. Here in Qatar, they decided to allocate almost 3% of their GDP towards scientific research. So this opened large sums of money, actually, unheard of within the region for, for supporting scientific research. And what about some of the challenges? Did you have any concerns when you first moved there? Yeah, the challenge is the fact that it's really a new research establishment. You know, what has been done in, in Europe and the U.S. over decades is happening here within actually years. So things took longer uh, simply because the administrative structure for a research operation was still very, very small and, and wasn't sufficient. For example, an office for uh, grants and contracts to deal with, let's say, the, the logistics of applying for grants and things of this sort. But quickly, actually, all of this has been building up. Since moving to Qatar, Laith has recruited young researchers from all over the globe. So too are other institutions on the Arabian Peninsula. Working in the Middle East can be a valuable addition to a scientist's CV, says Quirin. It is being recognised around the world that there is real science, that there is good science, that there is competitive science going on in, uh, in the Gulf region. And for young scientists to spend a couple of years in one of the U.S. satellite universities in the region or in a genuine um, Arab research environment such as in Saudi Arabia is certainly something that future employers would acknowledge. It is a sign of people's willingness to take a certain risk, of people's open-mindedness and, of course, of people's mobility. Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have been largely unaffected by the Arab Spring and unrest in the region. But what about gender equality? Women's rights are restricted in all three countries. Does this put female researchers off? Quirin again. 
It doesn't seem to. I have been slightly surprised when I reported this story that female researchers seem to see whatever restrictions exist on religious and cultural grounds, don't see this as a, as a big obstacle to doing research there. In fact, in the grounds of the King Abdullah University in Tuval, there is a very liberal Western mood. It is the only campus in Saudi Arabia where female researchers and female students can mingle with male colleagues and are not supposed to wear the Arab whale. And they can even drive cars on the campus. None of the women scientists I've spoken to has experienced any serious issues while doing research in the region. The region still has a long way to go before it matches the expertise and number of researchers seen in universities elsewhere. Just how quickly and easily will they be able to do this? Here's Quirin again. Um, We see that massive recruitment has been going on and continues to go on in in Saudi Arabia's King Abdullah University. So I guess the, the region will continue to catch up. It will become a serious player in global science. And I would reckon that in about 10 years from now, the Gulf region will be competitive at least to countries which have started out a little earlier, such as Singapore, say. That was Nature's Quirin Shearmeyer, and before him, Laith Abu Radad at Wild Cornell Medical College in Qatar. Find the feature at nature.com slash nature. The news chat isn't far off, and news editor Rosie Mestel is joining us. But before that, it's time for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Commercial fishing nets catch lots of creatures they shouldn't, like sea turtles. Now researchers at the University of Hawaii think there may be a simple solution – lighting the nets. Vulnerable sea turtles like leatherbacks and green turtles can see ultraviolet light, but several commercially valuable fish species can't. So the researchers hung UV lights over fishing nets in Mexico. 40% fewer green sea turtles got trapped compared with nets that weren't illuminated. And when the researchers teamed up with commercial fishermen, they found that the lit nets caught just as many marketable fish. You can read more in Biology Letters. Roving immune cells can teach others a lesson, according to a US-based team. A group of specialised white blood cells known as T-cells teach other immune cells to produce more antibodies against invading bacteria and viruses. The team used microscopy to study how T-cells behave in lymph nodes in live mice. It turns out they get around. These T-cells shuttle back and forth through lymph nodes where B-cells mature. Their constant movement exposes B-cells sitting still to different types of T-cells, increasing the range of antibodies the B-cells can produce. Find that paper online in Science. Think of a thermometer and you might picture a glass tube, marked with degrees and with red liquid climbing up the middle. Perfect for sticking under your tongue, but what if you wanted to measure the temperature of something much smaller, like the insides of the individual cells? This week in Nature, Peter Maurer and his team at Harvard University present a new way of measuring temperature on the nanoscale. His device uses the quantum states, or spins, of electrons in tiny diamond crystals to calculate temperatures with startling accuracy. 
Nature's online news editor Davide Kaslevecki got the scoop from Mauer via Skype. What we have developed is a novel tool that is able to uh, measure very precisely temperature in a large variety of different environments. So we can uh, measure temperature inside of, for example, living cells or on uh, semiconductor chips. What is the purpose of taking the temperature of living cells? In general, uh, a lot of biological processes are actually strongly temperature dependent. And now, if you can measure or control the temperature very accurately, this gives you a tool to control these uh, processes. Why is it so difficult to take the temperature of a living cell? In principle, one of the main challenges is that you need a thermal contact. So this really requires you to be able to uh, place your sensor, your probe, inside of uh, living cells. And there you uh, can see immediately that there are uh, associated with that a lot of different challenges. On one hand, uh, your sensor needs to be uh, very small, on the order of a few tens of nanometers, so that you can introduce it into a cell without uh, perturbing its uh, normal function. Then it, of course, should be non-toxic. It also requires you to be able to measure temperature without being affected uh, by the local environment, like, for example, the pH or uh, the chemical environment. And you did it using these uh, diamond nanocrystals. Uh, why did you use diamond? So in our approach, we use uh, the quantum mechanical states of individual electrons inside of this diamond. And the nice thing about diamond is that you can fabricate diamonds with a very high degree of purity. And so you're able to measure the temperature very accurately. What about these diamond particles? tells you the temperature of the cell. So what we are using to measure the temperature are optically active color defects in diamonds. They are natural occurring, but uh, you can also artificially fabricate them. And they fluoresce if we shine with a laser uh, at them. And from measuring the, the fluorescence rate, we learn something about the spin state. And uh, by measuring the spin state very accurately, we can uh, learn something about the temperature. The measurements you get are incredibly accurate. So in our measurement, we were able to show that we can measure uh, temperatures on the order of a few millikelvin accuracy. Thousands of a degree, essentially, right? Yes. What could you learn about living organisms by mapping their temperature? So in certain organisms, like in C. elegant, uh, which is a microscopic worm, the rate with which uh, cells divide is strongly temperature dependent. Now what we can use is our tool to uh, locally change the temperature inside of this uh, C. elegant worm and see how other cells may slow this one particular cell that we heat up uh, down to synchronize uh, the entire process. Would there be any applications outside of biology? Yes, uh, one particular application that we are thinking of is now to uh, use this nanoscale uh, control of temperature to control chemical reactions on a submicrometer length scale. Peter Maurer there. All the content we've talked about this week can be found at nature.com slash nature. 
Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and news editor Rosie Mestel joins us in the studio. Hi, Rosie. Now, first of all, the microbiome. And there's some news this week about a meeting that went on to discuss the next phase of a giant project that's been sequencing people's microbiomes. Um, Tell us, first of all, about the project to date. Well, the project to date, it took five years and uh, the NIH spent... $173 million on it. It was called the Human Microbiome Project. And uh, the aim of the project was to take individuals in just fabulous health, they couldn't even have gum disease, 242 of them, and then sample uh, various parts inside and outside of them, the mouth, the gut, various regions on the body, uh, to see what microbes dwelled there, which they did by a massive sequencing effort. And now we have, five years later, a giant catalogue by the looks of things. Yeah, last year uh, the scientists published a slew of papers on what they had discovered so far and they're moving into the next phase, which will last for the next three years, something like that, to um, start hopefully addressing hypotheses about all the bacteria and other organisms, microorganisms that they found there. So researchers met last week to discuss this next phase. Is it is it clear what's going to happen and how they're going to take this project forward? Well, one thing that is going to happen is uh, the effort is going to be split up among different institutes of the NIH. Up until now, it's been housed in one place, the National Human Genome Research Institute, and now the Human Microbiome Project is losing its home and research efforts are going to be spread out between different institutes at the NIH. One of the things that the scientists said last week was that they were concerned about um, several things, including standardization, because obviously if you're going to start testing hypotheses about what microbes are associated with what disease, you have to have standard protocols. When do you sample? What will have somebody eaten? How long before you take the sample? Um, and also, the scientists did express concern that the, the effort really has to move beyond just sequencing more stuff. There are hypotheses that scientists have about the link between the microorganisms that live on us and in us and various disorders and diseases. So scientists have to start thinking about ways to address those questions, test them. Is it going to be harder to do that than just simply providing an inventory of all the bugs that were on someone's skin and in all their orifices? Well, yeah. I mean, say, what if you notice that somebody has a particular disorder and you notice that their microbiome population is different than somebody who doesn't? I mean, you don't know whether those microbes um, caused or, or contributed to the disease or they're a consequence of the disease. And so what some people say is you've got to start doing longitudinal experiments where you look at the population before, during, after. There are various experiments you could imagine that a scientist might do in humans and mice, for instance, to test some of these hypotheses. What are some of the links that scientists already know about between disease and the microbiome? Just give us a flavor. Scientists have floated uh, various links, including, say, to obesity, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, psoriasis. And other scientists have also sort of pointed to the the increasing evidence that these uh, bacteria, most of them are bacteria, and other organisms that live in us may contribute to our health. And so they pose the question, what what are all these antibiotics doing to us? 
So plenty of questions for that project to address then. And moving on elsewhere in the news section, well, it's a well-known problem that there's too much carbon dioxide in the world and here is a pilot project just getting underway to uh, address one way of trying to clear it up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Washington started um, in July injecting CO2 into a big basalt formation near the town of Wallula, though hundreds of meters underground. So this rock contains pores created many years ago as magma started to cool. And in the process, little bubbles of CO2 moved out to edges of the rock, creating these kind of layers of porous rock amid solid basalt. Um, So the idea is, why don't you just inject the CO2 down there and over time, it will chemically react and uh, solidify. It will react with calcium and magnesium to form limestone over the course of decades. And there you have it. It sounds a little bit like the way I tidy my room and I just chuck everything at the really back of the cupboard and then I try and forget about it. I mean, is this going to work? Scientists are busy there doing their test analyses to see whether this thing can really float. Uh, Some of them believe that ultimately the best rock formations to target would be ones uh, under the ocean. And some of their calculations suggest that the seafloor could accommodate CO2 emissions for centuries to come if this all works out. Are there unforeseen perhaps dangers of injecting a lot of CO2 and gas into deep rock formations? Well, the scientists are doing uh, all kinds of tests to see whether the CO2 is leaking into the soil and groundwater, i.e. getting away. Um, The other reason why scientists think, some scientists think that the best place to bury globally significant volumes of CO2 is offshore, where they will be safely capped by sediments and seawater. Presumably, even if you manage to solve the problem of where to put this carbon, you've still got to trap it, right, and then inject it. How do you do that? Yeah, well, scientists say that's a big uh, question. I mean, and they point out that achieving this sequestration goal is only half the battle. They have to figure out how to capture the CO2 from industrial facilities and then transport it to the sites uh, where uh, the CO2 is going to be sequestered. And furthermore, they have to do that cost effectively. And so this is a big undertaking. It would be something akin to creating a brand new oil industry. Okay, Rosie Mestel, thank you very much. Go to nature.com slash news for more on all those stories. Most popular on the website right now, the superbug story from last week's show, still topping the charts. And further down, a story about a deadly pig virus that's turned up in the US. That's it for this week. Join us again next time when we'll be getting to know NASA's robot rovers better than ever before. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. 